Hi and welcome to another episode of the Strobe Light Show. Today it's WFH day for the Strobe Lights team and that's not work from home but it's actually working from a hill or to be more specific working from Hutri Durga, a trekking destination that I'm told is not very commonly known among trekkers. Point to be noted, we at Peak Alpha not only give you sound financial planning advice but we also tell you which are the trekking destinations near Bangalore and all the fun spots. We are here today with our guest and he is an avid mountaineer. He's been on two Himalayan expeditions and he's written about it also. He suggested that we come to this spot and do the shoot. And as you know, at Peak Alpha, our customer's wish is our command. So let's go see who our next guest is and meet him. So here we are with the next guest on the Strobe Light Show, Ramaswamy Narayanan. Welcome to the show, Ram. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be out on a fabulous day. So, have you been here before on, on this trek? I think I've been here before is an understatement. I think I've uh, been here so many times that I probably can walk blindfolded on this <laughs> terrain. Okay, so how, you know, tough or challenging is this trek? I'm sure it's not at all after your two treks, Himalayan expeditions. Yeah, so the little nugget in terms of this this hill itself, I think this was one of the Navadurgas or the okay. nine forts that was constructed by Kempe Gauda. What drew me here was not the history. It was just because in COVID times, all the other usual hotspots were closed. I see. So I really needed to find something to sort of, you know, trek. And I found this to actually be a fine balance between the level of um, strength that I needed to build in terms of its difficulty, but it's also got some fabulous views. So talking about adventures, you've done two Himalayan expeditions. Your latest was to Mera Peak. Mm -hmm. And how high was that? So Mera Peak has got different uh, measurements, but okay. I'd say officially 6470 is the latest in terms okay. of meters. So that is approximately about 20 and a half, 21,000 feet. Okay, so 6,000 odd uh, meters above sea level and the Everest is about 8,000, right? Correct, 8,800. Yeah, 8,800. Yeah. So is that going to be your next destination? I don't know. So two years from now, definitely on my bucket list is an 8,000 meter peak. Okay. But I'm not quite sure if it's going to be Mount Everest or not. Okay, let's hope it is. <laughs> but what got you started into, you know, exploring, trekking and, you know, going off into the mountains? Interestingly, I think it was boredom. <laughs> uh, so I got to rewind a little bit. So 2001, two, when we were living back in the States, so my wife decided to take a slightly longer vacation with my son back to India. Mm -hmm. And so I had nothing much to do. And then I chanced upon a bunch of guys who were living in my apartment who were actually into a lot of climbing and things. So I got interested, but that was never a hobby sport of mine. But I said, okay, why not give it a shot? And this was actually the fall season there. Okay. And I used to live in the eastern side, the northeastern Connecticut. And that was supposed to be one of the best places if anybody wanted to see fall colors. Hmm. So that was a great opportunity for me to start doing some climbing, get on some of these treks. And lo and behold, in about six months, I really caught on to that as, you know, somewhat of a way to, you know, de-stress a lot. But at the same time, the beauty of that landscape is so captivating. Right. So that's where my journey began. So I'd say in the next three years, I checked almost all of what's called the presidential range of mountains there. Mm -hmm. 
I also did one which was a scary one uh, up. There's a thing called the Appalachian Trail. Yes. I would say after I came back to India, it kind of fell by the wayside mm -hmm. a little bit because, you know, profession, everything else sort of takes center stage. And I don't think I really pulled myself to find an you know enthusiast group to be a part of. But 2018, so my wife and I, we took uh, a small tour to Kathmandu. Mm -hmm. So it was like a Nepal uh, sojourn, if you will. So there we took something called as the Everest flight. Okay. So it's a one-hour flight that takes off from Kathmandu, goes around Everest and comes back. Mm -hmm. And that flight, for some reason, just changed the whole you know perspective. And I said, I've got to be here for some sort of a climb. And that's when I decided I wanted to do the Everest base camp because that's when I knew that there was a trek of that nature. Right. And in 2019, I was back on the mountains. So Ram, considering you got back to uh, climbing mountains and trekking after a break, you said, how did you train for it? Is there a specific kind of training to, you know, go into the mountains and last on a trek, which is for 15 days or so? Yes, there is. And I would say from a fitness standpoint, hmm. you don't re really need to do a lot of specialized training, but basic endurance is a must. Hmm. So I probably want to talk about my preparedness across two treks. Mm -hmm. So the first time when I embarked on the Everest, Everest base, base camp, camp, so I thought all you needed to do was, you know, really walk because that's all it is. So I used to have these crazy drills where my wife would drop me off 25 kilometers from home. Wow. And I would let her go. And my motivation was she would leave with my wallet so that I don't cheat. And then I would actually walk that entire 25 kilometers back with a backpack. Okay. And I did that for some time and I felt good saying, okay, this should be good enough. What I did not know and which I found out as soon as I started the base camp trek, it's anything but walking. There's a lot of climbing involved. Mm. So there's a lot of climbing up and climbing down. And the reason I call that out is that is something that we don't work out for mm. and don't anticipate in a climb like that. So lesson learned. So when I had to do my training for uh, Mera Peak, and again, it was a higher altitude than base camp. So I changed my training regimen. So I got myself first as a personal trainer because I did not want to injure myself. The second thing is really because it was a lot of climbing, mm. very focused exercises for my legs, particularly the calf, the thigh, the glutes, and the back. Mm. And I would say I worked out very specifically for about four months. And that really changed the game for me on this particular trek. I think so physically, mm. I would say I was a lot more prepared mm. for this particular trek than I was for the one before. And you had a question about an 8,000 meter. I think that's a whole new ball <laughs> game because that will involve a lot more of climbing, which means right. your entire body will now start coming into, you know, use. So there's a lot of ice hack use. You've got to pull yourself, mm. your body weight by your hands. So I think it'll be a completely different type of training when I start training for that. And does this training also involve you going on a particular kind of diet to build strength? The Indian diet, I'm told, is that we guys really don't pay as much attention to protein as we must. So when I started training, it was more of the physical exercises compounded with you know the right amount of food and things. I wasn't going crazy because I still love all of my sugary sweets. <laughs> I love boatloads of carbohydrates, but what I did is compensated with equal amount of protein. And it was also protein at a certain specific time of the day, because that's when you have maximum delivery into your system and stuff I like see. that. 
but i wouldn't say i was like you know crazy uh, diet and you know okay. i wasn't on any of those okay you have a book uh, like a very well documented log about your trek to mera peak yes and i was reading it and i found a lot of the entries that you've made about the food you ate there was like regular food dal chawal chapati and omelets so is this what you have on a trek or do you also have special kinds of uh, diet for the trek not really one thing is the food is the variety is limited mm. obviously because it's it's a mountainous terrain there's not too much of variety per se but in that there is a um, strict guideline but mm-hmm. again it's only a guideline for us to follow it's preferred that you remain vegetarian i see okay uh, there is meat available on the mountains but it's just that there is no fresh kill on the mountains because it's a holy or a sacred mountain oh okay so a lot of the meat that actually comes up there is either carried in frozen and then it makes its way up over a couple of days and so that's the reason you stay away better mm-hmm. but the vegetarian fare is i mean it's elaborate what i lived on was what is traditional dal chawal mm. it's just that it was nepali dal bhat mm. and in fact there is you know they also have a saying about the power of dal bhat mm-hmm. and they swear by it because it's got the right dose of carbohydrates the protein and there's some kind of a leafy green that grows in that part of you know the world mm. and that kind of completes your palate so mm. you got rice you got your dal and the dal the usually greens. has potatoes as okay. well in it mm. and then you have the greens mm. it's filling so ram tell us about the actual journey up into the mountains how difficult was it and were you alone every day is a different day yeah. so if i were to describe a typical day it's a it's an early start um usually we get to start the walk by about 7 a.m in the morning mm-hmm. which means you know you back it up a little bit allow time for breakfast and things now shower is a luxury mm-hmm. it's optional too right you don't shower. have to shower if you don't want to <laughs> so considering that it was about a 5:30 6 a.m wake up on a typical day and then you continue the journey so different parts offer different challenges because in some cases you know uh, like for example on a particular day in that single day we had to ascend almost about 1800 to 2000 meters mm. that's a very steep climb and then you descend back so that particularly was a very interesting day because there's a lot of climbing that's going on otherwise for most of the time it's about a 6 hour walk if mm-hmm. you will uh, with breaks for lunch and things like that now loneliness right or you know company for journey now when i started off apparently there were two other people that signed up but mm-hmm. i don't know if it was true or it was just a motivation for me to sign up i did i ended up being a solo trekker so which means it was myself i had my sherpa and i had a porter well three is company but for most part i mean because i'm the only traveler there the first four days of this trek i did not see anybody else on the trail wow so unnerving at first because you're not kind of you know expecting to do the walk by yourself although the walk is something you have to do you know just by yourself even if you're in company but not meeting anybody else on the trail was a bit of a challenge and i think um, compounded with the fact that i had zero network connectivity and this is a very funny thing because you know we are used to whipping up at least i am every half an hour whip up my phone yes because i think i'm very important people keep sending me messages or that's the impression so i keep looking at the phone and there's nothing because there's no connectivity yeah so it was almost of a withdrawal symptom of you know ping on social media and what have you 
along with that the fact that you have nobody else to speak to other than of course the occasional banter with the porter and you know the sherpa but after three days or four days i really started enjoying now uh, the fact that there was nobody around mm. because now i was actually paying a lot of attention to stuff and things like that on the trail little things and which uh, you know um there's a lot to describe but the day progresses where you kind of start off it's a heavy breakfast because that's probably the first meal that's going to get you see you for a, the first 2 3 hours and then you make a little stop there's plenty of water breaks along the way mm. water is an essential um at about 11 o'clock in the morning typically is when you break for lunch um sometimes earlier mm-hmm. depending on how much of ground you have cleared and and covered and you know how tired you are so around 11 break for lunch it's about a half an hour to 45 minutes for lunch and just rest a while and then the trek sort of resumes usually the target is by about 3 pm between 3 and 4 pm you reach that next stop for the day mm uh, because the dust start getting a little uh, darker sooner right and you don't want to be out there because the wind starts getting a little bit colder and stuff like that so about 3 or 4 so that's an average day mm now there's one particular day which is summit day mm Now that was the most interesting day because the wake up and the start to the trek was 12 midnight. Wow. And I think it's also partly because the Sherpa kind of you know understood my capability if you will on the trek. He said well for average people Ram don't worry it's about you know 5 hours you will make it in 7. Mhm. So you can imagine that you know I didn't particularly pass that test. So we said okay let's get an early start. But that one day was 18 hours of walking wow and that was something that you know the pain of it i did not feel just because of the exhilaration of reaching summit and the view and all of that stuff but once i came back i think i just crawled back into the lodge and i just plonked and i think 11 hours straight i did not wake up wow so that was the kind of fatigue that you know i took on that particular day generally peaceful days right yeah So you've told us how you prepared for it in terms of building strength and endurance and you know researching where you're going to head next. But is this a very expensive uh holiday, not holiday, hobby to have? It depends. Now, okay. <laughs> this is interesting. Now, one thing is there's all kinds of tour operators. Right. I- I'm sure even if you look at anything in India or anywhere else, I mean you can do a vacation. I mean these days YouTube is you know rich with go Vloggers. to Maldives in 15000 rupees they yeah. don't tell you where you are living yeah so and then you have similar things even for you know these kind of expeditions but what i prefer to look for in an agency is reputation in terms of how long have they been in operation mm-hmm. the second thing is their staff mm. are these certified guides mm. because these guys must have something called as the Nepal Mountaineering Association so that's like a body a quasi government body that kind of gives permits and accreditations to these people the third thing is how much emphasis they have on safety hmm see at the end of the day i think they make a sign an undertaking saying you are solely responsible for the loss of your life i have nothing to do and we all sign it blissfully because that's something that i you know really i chose to do right but that notwithstanding i think the ability for the company to look for your safety so when you take all these parameters the range sort of gets to a slightly different level hmm. and i'm not talking about luxury because there is no luxury in in these treks and it's very basic accommodation 
you could pay whatever you want you're still going to sleep on a wooden cot that's sitting on a rocky you know floor that's it that's luxury so for me particularly for this particular trek all put together an expense was about you know two and a half lakhs or thereabouts mm -hmm. which included my flights from Bangalore to Delhi to Kathmandu and then there's a package fee that I pay the agency mm -hmm. that's Kathmandu to Lukla mm -hmm. the entire 14 day affair back to Kathmandu all expenses food lodging is all covered under that mm. and they also include some specialized mountaineering gear okay. so I had my trekking shoes which were the typical ones that you get in you know Decathlon I mean that holds up to a certain altitude but after mm. that it's all snow and ice mm. and so they give you this crampons and there are certain other things which are safety gear right. which is also something that you rent there which is included in this okay. yes it's not I wouldn't say it's very inexpensive, mm -hmm. but neither is it very expensive. Right. So the one caveat to that, the higher you want to climb, the more expensive it gets. Because the gear is different, the number of people that need to come to support and be part of your crew is different. Okay. And the number of days also increase because there's acclimatization and a whole bunch of other things. Financial advisor at Peak Alpha will agree that the bigger your goal, the more you need to plan, right? You know, what's interesting is my financial advisor had only two things. Just make sure that you have sufficient life cover, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, check. Yeah. The second thing was, okay, it's, I think it's also about, you know, there's a lot of things that I personally believe that, you know, you're born to experience life once. Mm. And you have many different facets of that life that you have to experience. And unfortunately, there's many trappings in, you know, in our journey of life where you can really get caught. Correct. And I've also, I'm also guilty of that. Corporate is a very, you know, excellent trapping where, you know, you kind of get to a point where you think your only purpose in life is to go to work and come back. Right. I think once you understand that, hey, this is just a facet or a part of it, I think the ability to be able to enjoy those various facets and therefore plan for each of those. Hmm. I think that's where the whole rigor around, you know, saving up for it, making sure that you're very intentional in terms of, you know, how you go about this. So it doesn't seem like, you know, you suddenly decide for a holiday and then you're scrambling or taking a yes. loan and this kind of, you know, the, the whole. But if I know that I want to take something, I think those were the kind of coaching mm. that I think financial planning really helped me. And I'd say just made the whole thing a breeze without batting the eyelid except for the insurance fact. Mm. That's okay. <laughs> it's part of the game. <laughs> So we were talking about how affordable this is and uh, tell me a little bit about how did you discover Peak Alpha and how did you become a part of our family of customers? You know, you, you used the word discover. That That was really what happened with, you know, with Peak Alpha. So this is, I would say, 2006 thereabouts. So I used to work at Wipro and I heard, you know, there was this interesting financial planning session by some sham sundar <laughs> so i said okay but first i mean there was a lot of people that were attending and things like that so i didn't have anything particularly going on on that particular day and said okay thura time pass ho jaye types so i walked into the session and you know sham of course he made his presentation and in hindsight i think he touched a lot of things that i sort of resonated with mm. And when I say resonated with, of course, he didn't touch upon, he didn't make it very technical in terms of, you know, what's financial planning and all of that. I think he narrated a story which I still remember so vividly 
is you know the journey of a person's life type mm. of a thing and he tied it to saying well if you look at your life as a journey there are milestones correct so every one of these milestones is also something that you move in your stage of life but mm. it's also something that your financial ability has to move and progress mm. i think that's sort of you know stuck a chord with me and on top of that he said then once the session was over he also said a few things that you know traditionally just coming from a, a middle lower middle class background my my dad was in the public sector so so we are not used to you know kind of looking at money and uh, like a saving and stuff like that or it was it was not a big discussion at home a fixed deposit was as best it was like you know if i have a 1 lakh fd yes life is sorted type of a i think all of those stories sort of resonated i came back home i told my wife that you know maybe we should just go give these guys a mm. in those days um, there was an office on lavely road and there was a building that was like a maze you go in and you climb up and, and eventually we reached the office and there it was sham i don't remember if uh, priya was there or not but sham and i think one of his very early employees a chap called ram kumar tall guy and because the reason i remember is i was really looking up to him quite literally <laughs> so we sat down we had this conversation it was a 45 minute conversation two things that happened is one somewhere and you know sometimes you get this vibe you meet some people and you're like you know to the i mean i don't know what you're telling me i don't even know if i want to believe you and the second is you really strike a chord and you say makes sense and i think this is somebody that i can trust hmm. i think that's where we sort of said okay and we really took baby steps mm. that's the start of peak alpha journey and you know coming to think of it it's what 15 16 years now and i would say that's probably one of the best things that happened to us in terms of just looking at how we manage finances as a family right and you know i would say it anywhere i think anybody for that matter and i think he came at the right time of our life to you know make that whole discipline of financial management a way of life for us hmm. that's that was the journey actually so it looks like you've been uh, part of the pcaf family ever since we started quite literally i've seen the organization grow. grow i've seen you know a lot of the team sort of come in and i think not only that i've also seen both you know sham also grow as an organization we've been through every single award the company's won right right and the second is also in terms of every stage of our life as we progressed the kind of counsel the kind of discussions mm. i mean i still remember we used to have some review meetings that you know nobody would actually categorize as being a pleasant one mm. is because you know we'd have a lot of questions and what i really found is there was a conversation there if there was a decision and i remember this one particular thing where we said i may want to buy a second home i want mm. to buy a flat and this whole thing you know i mean in in especially in this part of the country um your wealth is how much land or a building it is in and sham used to keep telling us one thing saying that look if you're going to buy something in which you want to live in it's fine it. otherwise you know i don't know if you want to and second is you may like a particular space today well your fancy for that place may change and then you're left with something so while he said a lot of these things it was more in terms of you know why do you care i mean you're managing the money so you should be helping us you're pull 
But I think a lot of those things very patiently explain the rationale. I think that's an approach where we've seen. Yeah. It was never like a status update and, you know, a typical thing that happens. It was conversations. Hmm. I think that's something that continues till date. I've seen my kids. My son is out through college. Second one is hopefully going to go somewhere and get out of college. <laughs> and I think we are doing everything that, you know, um, we wanted to aspire as a family to do and enjoy, you know, quality of life. None of this without, you know, sound planning, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm coming, picking on one word that you use, conversations about how it impacted you. And you also have something called the art of conversation, yeah. right? So tell us about it. What is it? Is it a club? So it's funny. So, so the genesis of the art of conversations uh, started off when I and a colleague who used to work with me pretty closely. So we, used, we went out, stepped out for, you know, grabbing a bite. Hmm. And it was like any other normal day. But I think particularly when we were there and we were, you know, we ordered our food and were waiting there. The one thing that both of us very quickly noticed was the amount of people around us mm. and the accompanying silence. Mm. Because most of the people there, although they were they had come in groups and stuff, everybody was clued onto their cell phone. Mm. And I don't know, it just it just sparked a conversation, if you will, and said that look, I think you know, why are people even here if people have to look at their phones and things like that? So one led to the other. We said, okay. Is it that the whole conversational element, ability to hold conversations, is that becoming a dying art? Art. Hmm. Right. And how is this going to, you know, change and what can be done about it? And I think that one conversation on that day made me come back and said, now, there's a choice, right? You can be a bystander and say, well, what can we do about it? But the second is actually do something about yeah. it. So the do something was the initiative called the Art of Conversations. And simply put, the idea is to instill a thought in people to say, look, a conversation is something that you have to be intentional about. Mm. So slowly we sort of honed in on one thing that I think is extremely important in this time and age is conversations within the family. Mm. And that's where I thought that it will actually be of benefit if I focus on that element of conversation within the family and particularly between the teen and young adults in the house and the parents. Hmm. And that's what the Art of Conversations is. So there's a website. It's called, you know, theartofconversations.com. There's an Instagram handle. There's a Facebook page. Hmm. Again, this is not about followership. And we don't care about, you know, how many K or M followers. If somebody thinks that they are benefiting from the message and they take one thing away mm. and practice it at home, mission accomplished. Right. Yeah. So that is the art of conversations. Okay. So Ram, you've written a book about your Himalayan adventure. So tell us about it. Did you intend to write one or did it just happen organically? No, I did not start out with the intention of writing a book. But here's what happened. Um, you know, there's a bucket list. I have a bucket list of mm -hmm. things to do. Mm -hmm. And one of those things is write a book. Mm -hmm. And um, sometime, so my uh, journey was in the month of September. So sometime in the month of May, I actually took a course in one of the online platforms about, you know, creative writing. Mm. And trust me on this one, I can write proposals, RFP responses and what have you. <laughs> but creative writing is just not in my, you know, uh, you know, vision. So 
what I did is as soon as I took this course, there was a few exercises that really got me hooked into this process of writing, if you will. Mm. So I practiced, I started writing, I really enjoyed that process. And that's when I was getting closer to trek day. Mm. I said, well, maybe it's a good idea if I start journaling my trek. Mm. Even then, it was not very clear if I wanted to publish the book, but I said, well, at least capturing those experiences so I can decide what to do. But as I started journaling every day, I think that that urge of, you know, seeing it being published as a story for somebody else to read, I think that really grew strong. Mm. So as soon as I finished my trek, came back, uh, took another month or so to develop the manuscript. I'm a first time author, obviously. So I had to figure out how does the space even work. Right. So then, you know, went into some self-publishing sites and all of that learning experience. And then eventually the product was, you know, that book. The intent really was, you know, twofold. One, I knew once I come back, a lot of my friends are going to be curious. And one is, I think I didn't want to repeat the story over and over again. Right. The second, I really wanted to also document this because I think it's it's a, a lifetime experience. Of course. More importantly, I didn't want to feel that my children, you know, felt that my dad was a bloody boring guy, you know. At some point, when they pick up the book, they can also say that, okay, this man was, this is also another aspect of his life. And maybe a few years later, when I pick it up, I think it's a great way to, you know, so reminisce and live through some of those mm. moments. Mm. And that's why the book is also, it's a, in very much a daily journal format. Right. Um, it, because I really wanted it to be my experience. It's how I experienced the entire trek as an individual mm. and not make it like, you know, a popular commentary on, it's yeah. just the players and the trek. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you've you've managed to do that. It's not just about the trials and tribulations about climbing uh, the mountain, but there's something about uh, the Sherpas who came along, the food that you ate, the lodges that you stayed, the, you know, the hail, for example. I still remember very vividly uh, you said you had uh, sort of bruises on your yeah. uh, knuckles because of the intensity of the hailstorm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of details, a lot of little details, but I think everything added to making it actually a good story, I think, in, yeah. the, in the end. And also, I think I like it because it's very simply told, almost like a diary. So yeah. that's that's very nice, like a personal story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm sure this uh, 15 days in the mountains, almost kind of solitary journey would have given you many life lessons, Ram. I'm just kind of, you know, thinking where to start. I think the most <laughs> profound lesson yeah. for me in this entire journey is I think we accord ourselves too much importance. Mm. Um, what I mean by that is to a point where we think we are absolutely indispensable in some roles of our lives. We also sometimes, you know, take for granted that, hey, stuff is not going to happen if I'm not around. Mm. So I think there's too much of self-importance in some areas. What happened is this particular trek, although not by, you know, design, it just ended up that 12 out of the 14 years of my trek, I had no connectivity. But guess what? After I finished the trip, came back, I just plugged into life as usual. Right. Nothing either in my house or in my professional realm or anything skipped a beat. Mm. Things just moved on. And I think that's a very, very humbling, I would say, feeling in life is that we are all here to be a part of something. We are not that something, True. first lesson. The second, 
I think there was a completely new meaning to silence. Mm. The fact that, you know, I ended up being that solo trekker, like I said, and most of the days the walk was alone. Mm. But there was something about that new meaning of silence because it was not really silent. There was a lot of self-reflection. The last and final, there's so many things that we take for granted as a city dweller. Mm. I mean, you know, we complain with traffic. We complain about, you know, there's no power at home. I think we need to be thankful that we have a mode of transport other than having to trudge on our feet all day long. Very true. So when I looked at the life of these Sherpas and when I looked at, you know, this is post-COVID. In fact, I was amongst the first trekkers to go back into the mountains after 18 months of COVID. Mm. And this is a community that thrives mostly on tourists and economy from the tourists. So much of their economy is broken, as you can imagine. People almost towards abject poverty, in spite of all that, the smile, mm. the welcome. And this is not a facade. You know, you can tell. Some people, it's like, you know, put on. you have to put on yeah. all of that. But this is genuinely something that they expressed. The way they really intend to connect with you as a human. Mm. Profound. And what I really learned about that is, yes, not everything is perfect. I'm also not saying that we shouldn't, you know, kind of uh, voice our opinions about something that's not working in a constructive manner. Of course. But I think we just need to be thankful about a lot of yeah. things that we have access to that many other people in the world don't have access to. Right. So I would say these two trips, the Himalayan trips, have really actually made me a person that I complain less, a lot less about things these days. Now, not because it's the chalta hai type of, of an course, attitude, yeah, but yeah. it's just out of gratitude that I at least have access to things that are luxury mm. in you know other people's lives. So I think these three, amongst many other, I would say, you know, key learnings. Amazing. And I, I can't imagine what your learnings are going to be in your next trek, which is probably going to be at a higher level. I think it'll be survival. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But thank you for sharing your journey with us and with our viewers. And uh, I think I'm going to stop talking now and let you continue on your path to the peak. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, thank you again. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. So thank you and thank you, the team. And thanks for everybody who's going to watch this as well. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, I was able to share the story and maybe inspire one or two of you to actually take off those trekking boots and make that little hike. I'm sure they will. And um, The Art of Conversation, of course, is on Instagram, Facebook and uh, podcast as well. Uh, so also Peak Alpha, you know the drill. By now we are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Do check this session out as a podcast as well. And uh, also go have a look at our website, peakalpha.com. You'll find lots of investment advice and lots of fun stuff that we always put out there. So until next time, see you then and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank mm -hmm. you.